Hello everybody, my name's Dr Paul Lane. I'm currently the Medical Director of Safety, Quality and Innovation at the Prince Charles Hospital in Metro North and I also am the Digital Sepsis Lead for Clinical Excellence Queensland and my clinical specialty is intensive care medicine. Paul, thank you very much for talking with the Senate. We really appreciate your time. That's fine. It's, it's a, a great uh, opportunity to tell everybody about the, uh, the amazing work we're up to. Now, there is a lot for us to talk about today. You're a busy man and lots of great things for us to hear about, but I'd like to start with sepsis, Paul. What is sepsis? Yeah, sepsis starts with an infection and, and that sort of triggers a, a, what we call a host response and unfortunately the body's organs, vital organs start shutting down and so it's really a sort of the textbooks talk about it as being a dysregulated host response but it's an individual's response to infection that can obviously be, be very severe and very life-threatening. Unfortunately, if we don't treat sepsis aggressively, it can lead to the body going into shock and then unfortunately patients can pass away. The other thing with sepsis is that unfortunately those who survive sepsis can be left with some long-term health issues and impairments. It is a global health emergency, sepsis. We estimate that about 10,000 Australians die each year of sepsis, so it's a, it's a big deal. So yes, Paul, as you said there, sepsis kills a lot of people each year in Australia and in fact in Queensland it's around 2,000 people each year and for those who don't die, they are at risk of becoming very sick. So it's really critical that it's diagnosed very early but you say that diagnosing it is often like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Why is sepsis so hard to diagnose? Sepsis can be very, very difficult to diagnose early because it can look like lots of different things. If you imagine the way an infection starts in your body, you can just have some very minimal signs and symptoms. You might have a little bit of a fever. And so unfortunately, it's really, really difficult early on to detect those people who are actually developing sepsis versus a mild infection. Our emergency departments are very busy places. Our GPs, when we visit them with a, a fever, that you know they're busy. And, and so it can be actually really hard for all those people who are presenting with an infectious illness to actually find those that are going to go on and develop sepsis. The other thing that is often surprising about sepsis, I think, for a lot of people is that you don't have to be someone who has illnesses to die of sepsis, so that unfortunately fit and well people can get an infection and develop sepsis and die, and it's, it's heartbreaking when those things happen. So there are risk factors for sepsis, and so obviously people who might be on immunosuppressive medication, so medication that dampens down the immune response, those people who might be undergoing things like chemotherapy where the cells that fight infection are weakened by the chemo. And there are other health conditions, very common conditions like diabetes, for example, that we know is a risk factor for sepsis. And so certainly when we try and assess someone in terms of their risk for sepsis, we do look for those risk factors and take those into account. The other thing that I think is not well known is that the way we respond to infection is in our genes. So if someone in our family, a, a close blood relative, has had sepsis, then we are probably at a higher risk of, of developing sepsis as well. So Paul, what is the current process for diagnosing sepsis? So to diagnose sepsis, you, you normally need to take a history and do a clinical examination, uh, record a patient's vital signs and, and take some blood tests and look at those blood test results uh, and then try and assimilate a lot of information at once with, I guess, a, a clinical suspicion. What we've done in Queensland is develop some paper-based tools, some pathways for uh, helping clinicians in the emergency department for both adults and children to follow a pathway like a tool or a guide that goes through the risk factors and goes through a series of questions to help screen for sepsis. And then if the clinician is concerned, 
they can seek senior help and also there's a guide about the correct treatment to start. Do you recommend that if a patient has a concern about that, that they bring it up, that they suggest, could it be sepsis? Absolutely, indeed. That's been part of our public awareness campaign is patients and families to advocate for themselves. What we know now in Queensland is that there is a greater awareness of sepsis through the the public awareness campaigns. And so, yes, I strongly advocate for people if they're coming to the triage desk in the emergency department or seeing their GP, they should discuss their concerns about sepsis. So, Paul, there's not one particular blood test that would come back and say it's sepsis. Is it more of a piecing things together? That's correct. There have been some blood tests that have been trialled, but at the moment we don't have one approved blood test, which is different from other conditions where we can do a blood test and show you the result and and start a, a line of treatment. But unfortunately for sepsis, it's not like that at the moment. Paul, as we said in the in the introduction, you're the clinical lead for an AI research and implementation program for sepsis prediction. Can you tell us about the program and how you think AI could help predict sepsis? Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. We started the project about three years ago. We got some funding from the Deputy Director General at the time. Uh, it was a small team in, in Townsville with myself as, as sort of the lead clinician and some data scientists and other folks to help us. A lot of support from Clinical Excellence Queensland. We got some, some data from the EMR, the Electronic Medical Record, and we used some machine learning models to develop adults' perceptions, predictive algorithms using that data. Certainly over that time, the team has grown and we've now got a Queensland Sepsis AI working group that sits within the Queensland Sepsis program. I think we've probably got about 50 people involved, maybe more, lots of scientists and researchers and some leaders in different fields and some governance people helping us with ethics and data governance. Um, and we all share that same vision of, of trying to improve outcomes for sepsis. I think AI has tremendous potential to support clinicians, particularly busy clinicians in a, in a busy you know, emergency department or busy clinical space. What's impressed me with AI is its ability to handle lots of information simultaneously. So you and I can probably remember about five to seven things in our conscious brain that we use to help us make a decision. The machine learning model that we're using at the moment takes in 124 features. And when I talk about features there, that might be, you know, some laboratory tests results, some vital sign test results, some decision points that have been ticked in the EMR. And so its its ability to compute all that information and to predict then sepsis is quite phenomenal. It's really been quite impressive to watch that with the data scientists as we've developed the models. And I think the really important thing about the computer is it doesn't need to go home to sleep. It doesn't get fatigued. It can run 24 hours a day to help support busy clinicians in the workplace. So yeah, I'm really excited about the potential for this sort of technology in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you up to with the research, Paul, and of course, the algorithm development? Yeah, so we developed the Queensland Adult Sepsis Predictive Algorithm. Uh, We're in the final stages of preparing that manuscript for publication. And what we've realised is that you can develop these algorithms, what we call in silico. So in the lab, you can take the data, take machine learning models and train them and get fantastic results for predicting sepsis. But you really need to expose them to a real-life environment where data is batched up and fed into the machine learning algorithm. So what we're doing at the moment is the next phase, which is a a prospective evaluation of our algorithm, how it works in semi-real time. So we've got uh, five digital hospitals in Queensland that have been involved with us in terms of the ethics and data governance processes. And we're just working behind the scenes now to secure some funding 
and I'm hoping that we can start this uh, semi-real-time evaluation of our algorithm in the coming months. And that's going to be very, very exciting. Yeah, it really is. So how important is data in the development of the AI model? Yeah, tremendously important. What we do is collect lots of information, lots of patient data. For our original work, we had over a million complete patient records. We then found sepsis patients within those records and then we sort of go and hide them in amongst everybody else and the computer learns to find them and that's very simplified Rebecca but ultimately that's how we use the data to train the models and obviously the more data you've got and the greater variability of the data reduces bias for example and also if you can include lots of patients from lots of different backgrounds and ethnicities then you prevent bias as well in terms of being able to predict sepsis in everybody, not just select patient groups. So it really is training it to find a needle in a haystack. Yep, continuously, 24-7, 365. What potential does the prediction model have for other diseases? Sepsis is often a condition in hospital that causes a patient to deteriorate. And by that I mean they don't do as well as expected. And there are a group of patients in our hospitals we call deteriorating patients. And these are people that should be getting better but they're not or indeed they're unwell and we're not sure what's going on and we're trying to work things out. And we believe that the sorts of technology that we're developing for sepsis will actually be able to help with that broader deteriorating patient cohort that exists. And so we've already started work in the background with ethics and governance around developing algorithms to detect patient deterioration. And so that will be phase two of our work. And I think, for example, other things like cardiac arrest and stroke and lots of other conditions will probably lend themselves themselves very, very well to this sort of technology. The, the heart of the machine learning model is decision trees. So, you know, if X, then do Y, if Y, then do this. And medicine is full of decision trees. And so any condition that you see that lends itself to a decision tree, we could actually use this sort of model, AI, to develop predictive algorithms. So it's really about supporting the clinician, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I try not to use the word artificial intelligence. I try to, try to use the word augmented intelligence. I'm not trying to re- replace a doctor or a nurse. What I'm trying to do is help them in a busy workplace with some insights about what's happening with their patient that they might be able to act on. You spoke at the Senate meeting, which was about research and AI, and you mentioned that aviation pilots use decision support tools as they fly their aircraft. And you use this as a way to explain that AI doesn't take the human out of the picture, but assists the human. Why did you decide to share that example? Rebecca, I've been doing patient safety for about 20 years. And I think rather unfairly, we're often compared to the safety of the civil aviation industry. And we all know that Thankfully, in, with modern technology, hopping on a plane and flying to visit friends and family is, is a very, very safe thing to do. What we don't quite understand all the time is the amount of technology that goes into these aircraft to keep them safe and to support the pilots in the cockpit to help them make the right decisions about what to do if there's an emergency or if they need to take some sort of other action. So I guess I was just trying to to show that we need to move beyond some of the simple tools that we currently use in healthcare, particularly paper-based tools and checklists, and embrace other forms of technology that can help us care for our patients better. There was a particular example that I, that I gave around this thing called Coffin Corner. And Coffin Corner is when the aeroplane is flying at high altitude, 
the stall speed, which is the speed where the aircraft isn't flying fast enough and, fly, and falls out of the sky, is actually very, very close to the speed limit of the aircraft or the mark limit. So that means that you've got this really small margin for error between going too fast and going too slow. And both of those have catastrophic outcomes for the aircraft. And so when you want to operate in that environment, you develop tools like automatic pilots and, and other things to help the pilot in the cockpit fly the aircraft safely. We don't have anything like that at the moment really in healthcare. And I think that's where this technology can fit in. Paul, it's really fascinating. How did this journey start for you? Like what got you interested in AI for healthcare? Well, I think the step before that is, is sepsis is a major issue in healthcare. And as an intensive care specialist, unfortunately, I met a lot of people with sepsis that were probably diagnosed a bit late or perhaps not managed that well. So sepsis was something that was a a daily foe for me when I was working clinically. And certainly when we did the digital transformation in North Queensland, I could see the capacity that that develops in terms of taking information and moving it around and putting it through smart systems to help guide clinicians. So it was really that digital transformation, making information mobile and being able to be displayed in different ways. So I, I saw that as an opportunity and then a, then a chance meeting with a, a really smart data scientist and we got talking about sepsis and perhaps the way in which we could detect it earlier and the rest sort of just started happening from there. Is a patient generally diagnosed with sepsis before they get to ICU or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. I think... Sometimes, like anything, sometimes it is easy to see sepsis uh, and sometimes it's harder. What we know is that with sepsis, every hour counts, every minute counts, both in terms of disability, potential disability and harm to the patient, but also, unfortunately, the patient may pass away if we also delayed in our diagnosis. So every moment counts and, and if you're busy if you, and you've got to assimilate all this information, blood tests, vital signs, other things, then it's just, it just can be hard to bring all that information together. And so this sort of technology, I think, will be able to alert clinicians a lot, a lot earlier and they can start appropriate treatment with antibiotics and they can also escalate then their concerns to a senior clinician. So if we fast forward 10 years, Paul, where would you like to see AI and sepsis prediction? I think I'd like to see a whole suite of predictive algorithms informed by continuous data that we feed into them that assist busy clinicians to keep our patients safe and to get them home quicker. And really importantly, I'd like to see our clinicians and our population, our community working together, accepting of this technology and engaged in co-design and system governance so that you know people are aware of the technology and accept it, see the benefits from it. I think that's going to be difficult because at the moment, particularly for some of this technology, there's a lot of suspicion and concern. So, yeah, it's a bit of a journey. Speaking of journeys, I want to take you back to teenage, Paul, when you decided what you were going to do in your career. Was medicine always what you wanted to do, Paul? What, why did you choose medicine? I don't know if I should tell the truth here, Rebecca. I, I, I chose medicine because it got me into the big smoke. I was pretty keen to leave home and go to university in another city. Having said that, I had a few health issues when I was younger, so I'd, I'd certainly interacted with the healthcare system. I think I'm fairly empathic. Um, I like to help people. I think I was very curious about how the body worked. So I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I sort of got it. I was lucky enough to get into medicine, and yes, it was a fit for me. In terms of ICU, I remember ICU just being this 
place of amazing care using cutting-edge technology and the satisfaction that you get when you resuscitate a patient or you, you bring them back from the, the, brink, the brink of death and give them back you know, their life and give them back to their families and friends. It's an amazing feeling. So, yeah, that's a quick summary of my journey. And were you from Townsville originally? Yeah, grew up in Townsville. Went to the University of Queensland in Brisbane in 1987 was my first year. And can you imagine doing anything else now? No. I think the, the beauty for me about medicine is it's allowed me to have a couple of different careers. You know, I was a, a junior doctor and exploring different things. I worked clinically as a, as a physician and as an intensive care specialist and now I've sort of pivoted and I've got a role where I do a lot of patient safety and also this sort of work, which is, which is fantastic. So when I look back, there's been lots of different things that I've been able to do with medicine. So, Paul, you're super busy and I wondered when you take off your stethoscope at the end of the day and you walk out of the hospital, how do you look after your own health given how busy you are and the stressful situations I imagine you would have been working in an ICU? Yeah, I didn't do this always very well, Rebecca. I think self-care is really, really important and certainly back in the day we didn't really talk about it very much when I first started as a student or training in a busy hospital as an intern or junior doctor. And I think we're all different, so we all need to probably do different things to, to re-energise ourselves and to clear our minds and to get us focused on what we need to do. As I said at the start, it took me a while to work this out, what I needed to do. There's a lot of work now about personal resilience, and I think it's really, really important. And checking in with yourself regularly about how you're travelling and, and listening to your body and to your, to your brain. Exercise is a big one for me, both mentally and physically. I've worked out that I do need to do some regular exercise. And if I don't, I probably get sick. Not sick, sick, but you know what I mean? I, I know I'm not functioning at my best. The paradox is that as you get busier, the one thing that you're tempted not to do is to go for that run or to go for that gym session. And so it's very easy to suddenly be in a bit of a spiral and you just don't know what you've done to get there. So in fact, when I'm, when I'm busy now, the one thing I don't cut out is, is my exercise and that's sort of my downtime and it refreshes me. But everyone's different. Some, you know, one of my friends plays the piano. Uh, another one likes to do hiking. You know, we're all different, but you've got to find your thing that, that re-energizes you and, and refreshes you because it is tough work, in, not just in intensive care, but lots of different areas of healthcare. And so we do have to stay on the top of our game. Now, one thing that you did recently that was very interesting was you went looking for dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? So my, my daughter, Sophie, has been talking about dinosaurs and paleontology for a couple of years. She's only 15. But we, Queensland Health runs a multi-purpose health facility in a little town out west of Townsville called Richmond. And Richmond's got about 500 people and it's a single GP town. And as I said, we've got this health facility there. And, and I had visited that as part of my role in Townsville Hospital and Health Service. And on this one afternoon when I didn't have uh, much to do, I popped into the local museum with a very low expectation of, you know, what the, the exhibits would be like. But I was absolutely blown away by the high quality of these sort of marine fossils that had been found around Richmond, which was once part of this large inland sea. So all these you know, animals are 100 to 75 million years old. So my daughter had to do some work experience, as you do in grade 10. So I said, well, why don't you write a letter to the museum in Richmond? And if you are successful in going out there, then I will take you out there and we'll do some digs and so forth. And it all worked out really well. 
The museum was fantastic. The town's been very welcoming. And so we've been out there twice now doing some digs and finding some great stuff. I actually don't. I think it's fun too. I do enjoy it. And picking up a bone that's, you know, been inside an animal from 75 million years ago, it's it's a pretty special sort of feeling. Paul, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Thanks very much, Rebecca. 